The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. You can think of the psalms like the Jewish playlist, their favorite songs, the songs they like to sing and listen to over and over. This particular song was included on the playlist twice. If you read Psalm 53, it's almost identical to Psalm 14. Nothing is repeated by accident in the Hebrew Bible. If you see it once, pay attention. If you see it twice, pay very close attention. Out of the 150 Psalms, these two reveal something of our human nature. And we are going to pay close attention to see what message it has for us today. Classic rabbinic commentators say the historical setting for Psalm 14 was David's prophecy foreshadowing the destruction of the first temple when King Nebuchadnezzar came down from Babylon, pillaged Jerusalem, and took thousands of Jewish citizens captive. This psalm is distinctive in that it gives us a a bird's eye view, maybe a 10,000 foot view of, of God's perspective on humanity. As we look at the psalm together, you'll see that God's name is mentioned seven times. Two different names are used for God. The first is Elohim, translated into God. Elohim depicts authority, power, and justice. The second name used for God is Yahweh, translated into English as Lord. And Yahweh is the intimate covenantal and relational, eternal name for God. So when you see the name God in the scripture tonight, remember that justice and authority and power are implied. And when you see the name Lord, you can remember that a covenantal, relational name or a relationship is implied. Unfortunately, the nuances of God's Hebrew name gets lost in translation, But poets use words very intentionally to convey meaning. And so tonight, I will try to highlight these nuances as we look at this chapter together. Let's start in verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. Do you mind displaying the scripture on the overhead? 
We are all on the fool's journey here in this life. And what I mean by the fool's journey is that as created beings, you and I, made in the image of God, have suffered deep amnesia. We have all forgotten, to some extent, the source from which we were made, the image that we were created in. You and I are guilty of acting as if we exist on our own and thereby denying God. The result of our amnesia is that our relationship to God is damaged. And as we will see tonight, this negatively affects our ability to relate to other people as we should. The name used for God in verse 1, you'll see, is Elohim, the righteous and powerful judge. The poet says the fool has denied the presence of God and therefore has denied accountability to God. We learn that the fool speaks this in their heart, not on their mind or their lips. It would be easy to assume that the psalm is just a condemnation of intellectual atheism. But we have some clues that the poet is condemning something much more beyond just a philosophical or intellectual atheism. Our first clue is that the Hebrew word for heart is a figure for the inner person. In this context, it's more of what we would understand as the real you, the core of who you are. It involves much more than just the intellect. And the second clue is that throughout the psalm, the poet is much more concerned with what people are doing than what they are believing. There are action phrases such as, they have all gone astray. There are none who do good. They eat up my people. You have confounded the plans of the poor. So we need to wrestle with this psalm. We need to dig a little deeper to extract the gold. And it's worthwhile to see that the core of the psalm is really about integrity of thought and action. It's more of a condemnation of false religiosity than it is intellectual atheism. You might call this functional atheism. In other words, a fool can think that God exists and believe intellectually, but in their hearts, it's as if they don't believe. Let's look at verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. God scopes out humanity from on high. God is above looking down and he wants to see if anyone is following after God. Although God is looking down on humanity, this may not be the whole of humanity. In its historical context, it may be in reference to Israel's enemies, the Babylonians. And the, you have to remember the Babylonian kingdom was massive. It, it included much of the Middle East and went all the way to the, middle, to the uh, Mediterranean Sea. However, these verses are eerily reminiscent of God descending from heaven to observe the folly of man when they were building the Tower of Babel. Do you remember that? Or when he looked down on the wickedness of humanity prior to the flood? 
So there is an ominous feeling in these verses. But for the first time, the poet intentionally uses the name for God that implies intimate, covenantal relationship with humanity. There is a glimmer of hope here in God's name. The Lord is looking down from heaven on the children of humanity to see if anyone is enlightened enough to seek and follow God. The Lord is looking down on the beloved children to see if any of them are accountable to divine authority, but God finds no one. The children of humanity have forgotten their relationship to God and forgetting who they belong to, the image they were created in, they deny God's justice. They cannot deny God's power. They deny God's authority. We all fall asleep. We all forget our birthright as beloved children of God. Restoring our relationship to God and remembering our belovedness is the gift that Jesus came to give. And it's why we pause to worship. It's why we practice spiritual disciplines. It's why we take time to pray together. So that you and I can remember our relationship with a God who calls us beloved. And remember that we are accountable to the same just and powerful God. When we do not actively pursue our relationship with God, the poet warns us that our relationship to others becomes dangerously callous in the following verse, verse 4. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? Eat up my people as they eat bread. That is a disturbing image. The poet is describing the dehumanization of the other. People eat bread for their own self-satisfaction, for their own cravings, their own pleasure. Similarly, the fool sees people as objects for their own satisfaction Without the recognition of divine accountability, human beings become a tool in the hand of a fool. And this is what the psalmist is railing against, seeing people as tools for power or pleasure. It's just the same as eating bread. We live in a culture that is an objectifying machine. We live in a society that doesn't care who suffers to achieve ends of power and greatness. We live in a society that measures success not in the well-being of people, but in acquiring things. We have a lot of things. We focus on doing things. We sell things. We buy things. We make things. We're in continuous pursuit of the next thing. We forget that the true joy is found in being, particularly being with other human beings. It's tempting to reduce one another to labels and categories. You are this or that. 
You are a teacher or a widow. You are a conservative, a liberal. You're an atheist. You're a Christian. You're a citizen. You're an alien. We can't help it. We do this all the time to one another. We unconsciously categorize the other and thereby separating ourselves from one another. And when we do that, we miss an opportunity to see the divine essence in the other. We, reduce, we risk reducing relationships to doing for other people or using them to serve our own purposes or to make us feel better, to feel our emptiness, to give us meaning in life. If you think about it, we eat people like we eat bread a thousand different ways. The last line of verse 4 asks, And do they not call upon the Lord? The name Yahweh is the intimate relational God who sees past all our labels of our ego, all of our identities, And if we're calling upon and sitting in the presence of a loving God who reminds us of our belovedness, then we can remember to see the beloved nature in every human being we encounter. Verse 5, they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but... The Lord is his refuge. We take for granted that if people believe in God, then people won't do corrupt deeds. They won't be the fool, hopefully, right? Yet, we see so often Christian politicians, Christian leaders using people as objects for their own agenda to gain more power. Too often we see this hypocrisy without any genuine sense of accountability. The poet is saying here that if people truly believe in their hearts that they are accountable to the watchful eye of God, the God who cares about the weak and the poor, it will influence how they behave, the decisions they make, the policies they create, the laws they enact. The poet gives us hope that even as the fool denies God and treats people like objects for their own satisfaction, the fool does not escape the justice of God. And what is this justice? God's justice is twofold. First, God is present and acting on behalf of those who seek God, the righteous. And second, the poet reassures us that the same God who peers down from heaven is always present and caring for the poor. God is their shelter. You could say that the trajectory of this poem is don't fool yourself, fools. God is always watching and mindful of the poor. If the loving and intimate God is the parent of all people, God is most concerned about the weak and the suffering among his children. 
One of Mother Teresa's favorite texts in the Bible was from Matthew 25. It says, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. The phrase, the least of these, does not mean that some humans have more value than others. Um, All humans have the same inherent worth because we're all made in the image of God. So a better translation of this would be the most vulnerable in our society, Um, the socially, economically, the psychologically disadvantaged, such as the sick, the homeless, the elderly, children, refugees, the mentally and physically disabled. How do you and I relate to these? the most vulnerable of our society. Are we callous? Are we dismissive? Are we avoidant? Or do we understand that every encounter with one of these is an encounter with Christ? The last verse says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. This points to future redemption, which is a recurring theme in the Psalms. The Psalm was written for a people exiled by their enemy, refugees displaced from their land, looking towards salvation. And God delivers God's people from their enemies who ate them up like bread, ultimately fools for failing to acknowledge God. Imagine for a moment God looking down from heaven in great disappointment and the poet saying, God, show them they're wrong. There is a word of hope at the end. It's an acknowledgement that even though in this context the situation remained very broken, the Lord, Yahweh, sees their situation is with them in their weakness and will liberate them from bondage. I want to end this tonight with a story that I believe reflects the antithesis of a fool, a story of someone who has seen the value and beauty in a population mostly invisible to our society. Willie Willie Baronet, like many of us, wrestled with whether or not he was doing good by giving money to panhandlers in his hometown of Dallas, Texas. He struggled with his moral obligation, um, ideas of compassion and goodness, and even how his own choices had contributed to poverty within his city. Like Willie, I'm sure we've all struggled with what to do when a homeless person approaches us for money. I'm sure we've all avoided eye contact with people on the streets, unwilling to really see them. But maybe we have given money, but we're not really sure if that was the right decision. Or maybe we took time to buy a meal for somebody. Or I'm sure there are many of us who have volunteered at the shelter just a block away from here. In 1993, Willie decided to try something different. He would drive up to an intersection and see a homeless person holding a sign that said, I need food, we'll work for food, can you spare some change? And he would roll down the window and he would say, excuse me, friend, 
can I buy your sign for my art project? Through a GoFundMe campaign, Willie Baronet went from Washington State all the way to New York City, passing through all these little towns along the way. He purchased signs from homeless people at intersections. He often asked to meet these people and talk to them to find out, like, how did you become homeless? What's your story? Willie took what was an awkward situation and he created a way to turn it on its head so that he was elevating the homeless, giving them dignity by asking them for something they had to give. What was surprising was how much these homeless people valued their signs. They weren't always eager to sell them. One homeless man explained, you may just see just a piece of cardboard, but when I sign it, it becomes a work of art. Willie collected more than 1,800 signs and put them together to create an exhibit called Signs of Humanity. Can you show that? It has been made into a documentary. Willie saw the humanity in a population we often ignore. He found a creative way to see beyond the label of homeless and see and recognize the value in the other. This was the way of Jesus as he fed the poor, healed the sick, sat with a sinner, spoke with the outcast throughout the intersections of Palestine. And this is what Jesus does for you and me. He reminds us that we are valuable and beloved. This is what Jesus asks for us to do with children in poverty in our city, with the homeless in our parking lot asking for money, with our LGBTQ family members, with a single mom working three jobs to support her family. We are called to really see, value, and appreciate the divine in everyone we meet. As we go into our time of silent prayer, ask yourself, how can I slow down, be curious, and see the beloved nature and those I encounter this week. <clears throat>